following message is presented by Erie Evangelical Free Church in Erie, Illinois. We are a church that exists for the good of our community and are proud to share the gospel of Jesus Christ as we seek to know him and make him known. When I was in high school, my best friend Jack and I used to pass each other all the time on the the street that went in front of our house. Um, And we had this idea this one time, this kind of agreement between the two of us. That if we were coming down the street in opposite directions, we recognize the other, we would switch sides of the road and drive past each other on the other side of the road. And we thought it was this really cool, like Top Gun, like we're, we're Maverick and Iceman, right? Flying down the road, just switch, switch lanes. Now, looking back, I realize how stupid that was, right? That's not lost on me. But as a high school student, my thought process was not on what's the safest, most prudent thing for me to do. It was, we're going to be like Top Gun. We all probably have a story or two in our lives. We all probably have a time or two. We all probably have more times than we would like to admit where we should have known how our behavior was problematic. But because we were focused on other things, we missed it. So now we're going to take some time. We're going to go around the room, and everybody's going to share one of those times with us. <laughs> no, we won't do that. But see, the thing is, <laughs> that's kind of the way that sin functions in our lives. We all know sin is unproductive and destructive, and yet we keep doing it. We keep finding ourselves engaged in sin in our lives. We keep doing it because we've missed, whether we realize it or not, we have missed the danger and the destructive power that is right in front of us. Even if it's only for that moment, we've missed what's right in front of us. So the question we have to ask ourselves is, how do we stay aware of the danger of sin without losing sight of the glory of Christ's redemption in our lives? Last week, two weeks ago, no, last week, last week, we started talking uh, about how Jacob arrived in Haran. He showed up, shepherds were there, Rachel comes with the sheep, He rolls the stone away, and then he goes to his uncle Laban's house. Today, we're going to see a little different angle to this story, because we're going to see Jacob now be confronted with his own sin as God allows him to suffer a setback that God's going to use to teach him a lesson to bless Jacob in the long run. We're going to start this morning just by reading this passage kind of talking through the story, and then we'll come back and and, and we'll talk about three key truths that we need to take from this story. So Genesis chapter 29, starting, and and really this starts in the, the second half of verse 14, where it says, after Jacob had stayed with, with him a month, him is Laban, Laban said to him, just because you're my relative, should you work for me for nothing? Tell me what your wages should be. Now Laban had two daughters, The older was named Leah, and the younger was named Rachel. Leah had tender eyes, but Rachel was shapely and beautiful. Jacob loved Rachel, so he answered Laban, I'll work for you, 
seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban replied, better I give her to you than to some other man. Stay with me. So Jacob worked seven years for Rachel and they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, since my time is complete, give me my wife so I can sleep with her. So Laban invited all the men of the palace, all the men of the place and sponsored a feast. That evening, Laban took his daughter, Leah, and gave her to Jacob and he slept with her. And Laban gave his slave Zilpah to his daughter, Leah, as her slave. When morning came, there was Leah. So he said to Laban, what is this you've done to me? Wasn't it for Rachel that I worked for you? Why have you deceived me? Laban answered, it's not the custom in this place to give the younger daughter in marriage before the firstborn. Complete this week of the wedding celebration, and we will also give you this younger one in return for working yet another seven years for me. And Jacob did just that. He finished the week of celebration and Laban gave him his daughter, Rachel, as his wife. And Laban gave his slave, Bilhah, to his daughter, Rachel, as her slave. Jacob slept with Rachel also. And indeed, he loved Rachel more than Leah and worked for Laban another seven years. Okay. This story is one that we tell with very few details when we teach it to younger, younger kids. And the reason for that is this is a weird story. If you don't think this is a weird story, you haven't studied it. Because it is a strange, weird story for God to include in his word. But it's important. And, and honestly, I could teach about eight different sermons on this passage alone, looking at different aspects of it. So if I don't hit the aspect you love about this passage, I'm sorry. We don't have time to hit everything. All right, we're going to look at this from, from this perspective today. But let's talk just real briefly through this, this story. Jacob has come to, to Haran and, and he's met his uncle Laban, his cousin Rachel, and he goes and stays with them because right? he doesn't have anywhere else to stay. This is his family. Remember, Laban has said, you are my flesh and blood. He's kind of taken him in as, as in a, a sense of adoption. And Jacob stays with him and Jacob works for him because he's staying there. And Laban looks at Jacob and says, okay, listen, you're staying here, you're working, I should pay you. What do you want to get paid? And Jacob says, I I don't want any money, I don't want any extra money, all I want is to marry Rachel. Okay. Laban's like, I guess it's better that you marry her than somebody else. A great endorsement from your future father-in-law, by the way. I guess you're better than everybody else. Uh, So he says, okay. But we're told that there's two daughters, right? There's Rachel and there's Leah. Leah, the older one, it says, has tender eyes. This phrase is unclear as to what it means. You've probably heard it taught as she's not very attractive. She's not as good looking as Rachel. Maybe that's a possible interpretation. Many scholars believe what this really is talking about is that she has some sort of issue with her eyes that's actually pretty common among desert dwellers. You know, with the sand swirling around all the time, you constantly have sand in your face and she'd get it in her eyes and she couldn't see very well. And, and this, um, this issue probably made her eyes red, swollen, puffy, which may not be incredibly attractive, but the problem isn't that she's not attractive, Right, So what is this exactly, these tender eyes? We don't know, and that's the point. 
We're not told what the tender eye is. But what is clear from the passage is whatever it is, whether it's that she's unattractive or that she has this eye issue that would make her not a very suitable marriage partner in that part of the world, the, the point is Jacob is going to love Rachel, not Leah. So Jacob loves this younger daughter, Rachel. And he agrees to work for seven years to, in a sense, buy Rachel from her father. Laban says, great. So seven years go by. The time comes to to consummate the wedding. And Jacob sleeps with the younger daughter. Now, why is this? Well, in the marriage ceremony, first of all, there was probably a lot of alcohol involved. Impairing his ability to discern what's right in front of him. It's also, if they had a wedding feast, afterwards, it was probably night, right? And I don't know if you know this about the, the parts of the Bible that take place in, in Genesis, especially, um, they didn't have indoor lighting. There, 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 he wasn't like flipping on the light switch as he walks in the room. It's dark. There are many reasons why he wouldn't know that this is Rachel. None of them are very good, right? Nobody's saying these are good reasons why he wouldn't have recognized us. If he is faithfully walking with the Lord in this time, he probably would have had some understanding of who he was sleeping with, but he doesn't. So Laban pulls the old switcheroo on him, sends Leah in instead of Rachel. Jacob recognizes this the next day. And says, whoa, 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 what have you, what have you done? Why would you do this to me? And of course, Laban says, well, in our culture, the older has to be married before the younger. This was not uncommon in that time. The question may come up in your mind, well, why'd he even agree to give Rachel in marriage before Leah if he knew this was the case? Remember, Jacob worked seven years Maybe Laban thought, hey, in the next seven years, Leah's going to get married. We can, we can give Rachel to be engaged for seven years. We're going to get Leah married off. But in that time, it doesn't happen. So he says, well, I, you know, I had to get Leah married first. <sighs> okay. Jacob says, well, okay, well, give me Rachel. And Laban says, I'll, I'll give you Rachel if you work another seven years. Give me another seven years. I'll give you the younger one too. So Jacob agrees. So he finishes the wedding week with Leah. Then he has a wedding week with Rachel. And then he works another seven years. 14 years to get the woman he loves. Okay. Strange story, right? All kinds of questions come from this. But I want us to see three truths from this story to remind us of the danger of sin in our lives. And the first is this. Sin can be managed for a time. Sin can be managed for a time. Remember how Jacob got to this point in his life? It involved a whole lot of deception. When it came to the birthright, he didn't flat out deceive his brother 
But he made sure, yeah, you're really hungry. I got this stew. You can have some if I can have the birthright. He uses the situation to his advantage. When it comes to the, the blessing, he outright steals it from his father. He says, no, I'm, I'm Esau. Yeah, feel the hair on my arm. And he put the, the goat hair on his arm. And yeah, claimed to be someone he was not. And he stole the blessing. This deception that Jacob had used throughout his life, which proved to be valuable in his eyes, got him the birthright, got him the blessing. That similar deception comes back to haunt him now. Because remember, he claimed to be his brother to fool his father. And now Laban claims Leah is her sister to fool Jacob. Jacob had sinned, and he managed it for a time, but it came back to catch him. We've talked about this before, but I think it's worth repeating. Why do we sin? Why do you sin? Why do I sin? You know why? Because we like it. We sin because we like it. We're drawn to things that give us instant satisfaction or happiness or some sense of satisfaction in our lives when we often fail to think about or, or just to acknowledge the long-term ramifications of our sin. We might even just say to ourselves, well, I know this is wrong, but then we go do it anyway. We think maybe we'll get away with it. Maybe we'll get just what we want and not suffer any of the consequences. And for a short period of time, it can work. Even, even the Bible tells us this. Right? The book of Proverbs, it talks about a, a, a bribe is a charm to the one who gives it. That's not God saying bribes are good. It's God saying sometimes deception works in a broken, fallen world. Yesterday, uh, Emerson and Chase went with my mom and dad to Chicago to see their cousin play hockey. So Hayden was left home with, with Aaron and I. And was like, Hayden, what do you, what do you want to do? You want to do something special? And, and what she landed on was lunch at McDonald's. <clears throat> lunch at McDonald's is a special thing, right? So, <clears throat> so, just as, so I took her to get lunch. We, we're going to come back. We're going to eat together. Just before I left, Aaron goes, you should probably get yourself some lunch too. I'm like... Yeah, I can't do McDonald's. Like, I don't want to put up with the way I'm going to feel the whole rest of the day. And as I'm walking out the door, I checked the refrigerator real quick, and <clears throat> all the leftovers were gone. So we get to McDonald's, and I order Hayden's Happy Meal. And... All right, so, so I get a McDonald's meal, and I bring it home, and I eat it. And as I'm eating it, I looked at Aaron, and I said, you know, as terrible as, terrible as this is, Man, there's sometimes McDonald's is just good. <clears throat> right? I can't eat a steady diet of it. I couldn't have it today now after having it yesterday. It wouldn't be anywhere near as good. But every once in a while, as terrible as that is, it just tastes so good. Again, the book of Proverbs chapter 9, <clears throat> verse 17 and 18 says, Stolen water is sweet, and bread eaten secretly is tasty. Sometimes the wrong thing just tastes so good going down. But then verse 18 says, and he doesn't know that the departed spirits are there, that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. Yeah, that, 
That sin is going to feel good in the moment. And you might even manage it for a time, but it's going to come get you. you. You cannot, by your own power, by your own strength, conquer sin. You can only manage it for a time. Think about that sin that you battle with in your life. The one that comes up again and again and again. And maybe you've been able to, to manage it for a short time. Maybe you've been able to ignore it for a little while. Maybe you've been able to convince yourself that you've overcome it by your own strength, your own power, your own best efforts. Maybe you've been able to hide it away from view so nobody else sees it, nobody else knows what's going on in that deep, dark corner of your life. But eventually, it will rear its ugly head and it will remind you that you cannot conquer sin. Sin is too powerful for you or for me. Romans chapter two, verse 12 says, for all who sin without the law will also perish without the law and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. And what Paul is saying there is, he says, listen, if your standard of how you're dealing with sin is your best efforts or what you can do, then understand that you will fail. Because all of, all of the Old Testament, all of God's law is showing his people, you can't do this on your own. You're not strong enough. You're not good enough. You're not righteous enough. You're not holy enough. Paul tells us if we're left to our best efforts, we will fall every time. And he essentially says, you wanna live by that sword, you will die by that sword. because you cannot overcome sin. Sin, by your best efforts, can only be managed for a time. So we have to ask ourselves, what are the sins in our lives that we are simply trying to manage? What are the sins that we simply try to manage, and how long do we think we can hold out? Sin can be managed for a time, but only managed and only for a time. And that's because there is a penalty for every sin. Truth number two, there is a penalty for every sin. Every sin carries a penalty. Again, go back to the story of Jacob. God loves Jacob. God shows up in Jacob's life time and time again. And God is going to use Jacob and God is going to use Jacob's family to bless the entire world. But God still allows Jacob to suffer here. God still allows Jacob to suffer. Parents, you understand how this works. Because your children disobey you, right? It would be a very unloving thing for you to clean up all their problems for them and take care of all of their issues. As parents, we have to sometimes let our children suffer so that they can grow and so that they can mature so that they understand how to handle setbacks in life. So they see the problems with sinful behavior. 
It doesn't mean we love them less. It doesn't mean we won't be there to to support them, to walk alongside of them. But every parent knows there are times we have to let our children suffer the consequences of their actions. Now, there is absolutely no biblical case to be made for a statement like, if you do this sin, you will suffer that consequence. There's no biblical case to be made for that kind of one-to-one comparison. However, it is an inescapable reality that there is a consequence. There is a penalty to be paid for every sin. And ultimately, that consequence is death. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 17, God tells Adam and Eve, you must not eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, for on the day you eat it, you will certainly die. What's the sin there? Is it eating the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? No. The problem is not eating a fruit. The problem is the rejection of God's authority and God's command. It's the rebellion against God that is the problem. And God says, when you reject me, when you rebel against me, when you think you got a better plan than I do, understand it leads to death. And then in Ecclesiastes chapter seven, verse 20, Solomon says, there is certainly no one who does righteous on the earth, no one who does good and never sins. We've talked about this before as well, but in the the Hebrew language, the word here for no one, you know what that means? No one. Not a single one of us does good and does not sin. And then you get to Paul's writing in the book of Romans, chapter six, verse 23. What's the first half of... Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin, what is earned from sin, what you deserve for any sin, because remember, every one of us is not righteous. Every single one of us sins. The wages of sin is what? Death. So there is a penalty to be paid for every sin. Sin of any kind, I don't care how big it is, I don't care how small it is. Sin, every single time, deserves death. And every sin will be paid for. Every sin that owes death will be reconciled between a good, holy, and perfect God. Look at, flip over to to the end of your Bible. Revelation chapter 20. Verses 11 through 15. Then I saw a great white throne and one seated on it. Earth and heaven fled from his presence and no place was found for them. I also saw the dead, the great and the small standing before the throne and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life and the dead were judged according to their works by what was written in the books. Then the sea gave up the dead that were in it. And death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. Each one was judged according to their works. Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Okay, we could spend the next 10 hours picking these verses apart and what this means and how this plays out. But what I want you to hear in that, what I want you to see from this passage is that every sin is reconciled before God. He says, every person is judged. If you're written in the book of life, 
You're judged one way. If your name is not in the book of life, how are you judged? Twice in here, it says you are judged according to your works by the best you have to offer, the best you can give. And the best you have to give is sin. The best you and I have to give is a soiled life that falls far short of the righteousness of our God. So the question is not if sin will be paid for, the question is how. We're gonna get to that in a second. But the point is you and I are not morally good people who occasionally get off track. We are sinners by nature and by choice who deserve death for every single one of our transgressions. The world in which we live will sell us the lie time and time again that by our logic, by our reason, by the brilliance of our knowledge, we are capable of establishing and governing acceptable grounds for good moral behavior apart from who God is. That's the basis for the the current day cancel culture. It's that we just kind of decide what's good, what's right. And if you don't live up to our standards... You're done. And the biggest problem with that is when you build your moral grounds apart from God, you leave no room for grace, mercy, and forgiveness. For the believer, the knowledge that we are eternally condemned if judged by the best we have to offer, by our knowledge, by our goodness, it's not a sad truth. That's a truth that should help us rejoice all the more in God's grace. Because God is the one person who shouldn't offer us grace and mercy and forgiveness. Because he's the only person who is perfect. And yet he chooses to forgive. He chooses to forgive me. And if God has forgiven me for rejecting his perfect holy love, then what human failure can I rightly choose not to forgive in this life? From whom can I withhold that kind of amazing grace if God refused to withhold his amazing grace from me? Acknowledging the penalty I owe for sin acknowledging this truth that every sin carries a penalty and yet I've been forgiven, I've been redeemed. That is one of the most freeing truths that I know. A reminder that I'm not perfect, neither are you. Yeah, we have been forgiven. We have been redeemed. We have been saved. Listen, are we constantly aware of the, the depth, the eternal debt that we owe for our personal sin, right? We're not talking about sin as some evil out there. Yeah, there's sin in the world, it's bad. No, 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 we're talking about my sin. We're talking about your sin. Sin can't be ignored or set aside because it requires a price to be paid. That means that sin can't be removed easily or, or painlessly because atoning for sin is costly. And this is what Jacob reminds us. 
the story of Jacob reminds us that redemption has a price. Redemption comes at a price. And Jacob was, was deceived, right? We understand that. His uncle acted deceptively. How would you expect Jacob to respond to this deception? If I'm writing this story and somebody gives me the first half of the story and says, okay, now tell me how Jacob's gonna respond. I think he's probably gonna respond violently. He is gonna, he's gonna react violently against Laban. Or at least he's gonna bring some kind of legal charge to uphold the original agreement. Don't, don't those sound like reasonable responses in this case? Well, I worked seven years for your daughter. We agreed on this. And then I worked for you for seven years and you gave me the other daughter. This ain't right. But instead of reacting violently, or bringing legal charge, Jacob accepts the past and seeks to make the most of the future by showing his love for Rachel. He shows Laban, he shows Leah, he shows us how much he loves Rachel by working another seven years. His love comes at the cost of 14 years of work. Nothing valuable is free. Nothing valuable is free. We know this. If you have a home, right, it costs you money to, to buy the house or to keep it up. If you want to stay physically fit, it costs time and energy to exercise and eat well. If you want a healthy and happy marriage, it, it requires sacrifice and mutual submission on a daily basis. Even an inheritance that you receive is not free. Somebody else worked hard to earn that inheritance that you received. Might have been free to you, but it wasn't free. And this is true of redemption in Jesus Christ as well. If you and I are going to try to handle life on our own, to try to atone for our own sins, then we will be met time and time again with utter failure. This is what Jesus tells the religious leaders of his day. In Mark chapter seven, verse six through eight, it says, Jesus said to them, Isaiah prophesied correctly about you hypocrites. As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They worship me in vain, teaching as doctrines human commands. Abandoning the command of God, you hold on to human tradition. What Jesus is saying to these religious leaders is, you're trying to do all the good stuff, you're trying to do all the right stuff, but you don't care about me. You're doing all of these things so that you will be good enough so that you can hold it over the heads of those who don't quite match up to your standards, who haven't done as much as you have done. See, the religious leaders thought that their acts of righteousness made them holy. But the reality is good works, loving service, confession of sin, even our faith cannot cover the cost of our sin. but there's one who does. There is one who takes that receipt for the payment we owe and marks it paid in full. 
Because Jesus, who lived perfectly, died sacrificially on the cross, where he cried out, Tetalistai, it is finished, paid in full. I have done all that needs to be done to redeem you, to save you, to buy you back from the cost of your sin and the death that follows it. And when he rose from the grave, leaving the empty tomb behind him, it was the the declaration that death couldn't hold him down and death can no longer hold you down if your payment has been made. But that payment can't be made by you. It can only be made by the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. Acknowledging the depth of my sin allows me to see how much had to be paid for my redemption and allows me to rejoice all the more in God's grace through Jesus Christ. And so we have to ask ourselves, not just today, we have to ask ourselves every single day of our lives, where is my rest today? Where am I gonna rest today? Is it gonna be in how good I am? Is it gonna be how well I managed my sin yesterday? Or is it gonna be in the payment of Jesus' blood sacrificed for me? Sin is an unpopular topic in our modern culture. It's not something the world wants to hear about. And in fact, there are sadly many churches in which you will never or rarely hear about sin. And when you do, it's this, again, it's the passing notion of the sin out there. But the hard truth is that sin is crucial to our understanding of the Christian faith. Without acknowledging our own personal sin, the consequences that deservedly flow from it, and the debt that we owe because of it, we have no grounds upon which to understand the glorious nature of God's love, grace, and mercy poured out through the life, death, resurrection, and eternal reign of Jesus Christ and made known through the power of the Holy Spirit at work in us and through us. And so again, we remember we may be able to manage sin for a moment in time, but there's a penalty to be paid for our rebellion, for our rejection of God. And it's a penalty that must be paid. And while we rejoice in the fact that our penalty has been paid by Jesus Christ, we remain vigilant against its remnant clinging to our flesh, always looking to trip us up, to make us forget the glory of God's redemption. Church family, may we be a people who know with clarity the depth of the depravity of our sin. But, but, 
let us not dwell on our sin. Instead, may we be overwhelmed by the magnitude with which we have been loved and the completeness with which Jesus Christ has delivered us by the redemption, power, and the authority of his body and his blood. And with this in mind, let us share the joy of God's grace with our own hearts, with our brothers and sisters in Christ, and with the world into which God has called us to go and to share the good news. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for the ways in which you have loved us, forgiven us, delivered us, redeemed us, not because of who we are, but because of who you are. And Lord, we come today and we are reminded. We're reminded of the fact that we as human beings are sinners by nature and by choice. And for those of us who have confessed the name of Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we're reminded that while, yes, we are natures by sinner and by choice, we are also saints. We have been washed clean. We have been renewed. We have been bought back from the penalty we owe because of the way in which you have loved us, because of the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so Lord, may we, may we always be reminded of our sin that we are delivered from that not because we've been good enough or we know enough Bible verses or we've been to church enough or we said enough nice things or we just avoided the, the bad things. But we are delivered and we are only delivered because Jesus Christ sacrificed himself on the cross as the propitiation for our sins, that we might be welcomed back into your family, into your presence, so that we can celebrate now and for all of eternity that you are God, you are our Father, you are our joy, our hope, and our celebration. God, we love you, and we thank you, and we praise you. In your great and awesome name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's message. If you'd like more information about Erie Evangelical Free Church or our ministries, please visit www.eriefree.com or join us in person at 1409 16th Avenue, Erie, Illinois.